What's up, Beardos? You're listening to episode 134 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to, don't be a jerk. Don't really answer your question first. I'm not answering your question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talking about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com. You can always reach us by emailing thebeardvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been eating, go over the news, and then conduct a thorough exploration of learning when to shut up and knowing when to pick your battles. Oh, sorry. I was practicing shutting up for later in the show. <laughs> nice. Nice. I thought you were going to tell me to read that better. <laughs> no, I would never do that. <laughs> Except all the time. <laughs> all right. Before we get into this show, Paul, we got a little announcement to make. As promised in last week's episode, the May bonus episode has been posted to our Patreon account. Hooray. So if you're unaware, we have a little way to support the podcast through our, our Patreon account. And as a nice reward, everyone, no matter what level they donate at, $1, $10. Paul, some people have gone more than $10, which is sort of like the highest tier that we have set. Yeah, it's wild. Part of me feels like we need to like come up with something even better for those folks because they're just like throwing money at us so uh, thank you to anyone that does that but yeah we post at least one bonus episode every month in there sometimes it's a little more than that and we have a couple of goals that we're trying to hit and once we hit those we'll put even more episodes in there but you can go over there right now to thebeardvegans.com slash beardo if you want to get in on that action just hit the patreon tab once you do that Paul, this episode was a movie review, which I'm sure is no surprise, but we did this <laughs> film called Hope, What You Eat Matters. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, this film was a real wild ride, I think, for both of us. <laughs> a real wild ride. A real wild ride, because we thought we were getting into one specific thing, and then it turns out that was very much not what we were getting ourselves into. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, I think it's a it's a fun review. It takes a couple of turns. It gets a little loopy because we're recording it late at night. So the, the film did leave us with a lot of questions, one of which is actually, what does this title actually mean? Because HOPE is spelled out like as an acronym, all capital letters, H-O-P-E, period after each one. And the film never actually explicitly spells out what that stands for. So we we took a couple of guesses. One of these is the actual what this stands for, but let's let's take a couple stabs at it and see if people can guess which one it actually is, Paul. All right, you go first, Andy. Okay. My first one, Paul, is mm-hmm. Hello Octopus, pleasant evening. <laughs> <laughs> I got hence our overprotective earwax. <laughs> Great. Uh, maybe it's hire our penguin evaluators. Okay, okay. Uh, Paul, question. Does that make you think that the penguins are doing the evaluating or there's someone that evaluates penguins? <laughs> it could be either. It could be both. <laughs> could be both. Are the, wait, are you saying the penguins are evaluating the other penguins? That's what I'm, that is exactly what I'm saying. Okay. My next one was, here, O Pope, enjoy. 
<laughs> Great. I pictured this one as like a sign in a window that just said, heist opportunity, please inquire. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. All right. My next one is, have our pumpkins eviscerated. <laughs> it's like a pumpkin destroying service. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Great. How about hats optional, pants expected? Oh, that's good. That was real good. That's probably what the title of the movie really is. Yeah. My next one is Henry, only penguins elope. Oh, I see. We got a nice penguin theme going here. Yeah. yeah. How about horticulturists on parade? Exclamation. <laughs> and here's my last one. Has our Pokemon evolved? <laughs> Very nice. And my final one is Hitler obviously pukes excrement. <laughs> So one of those is the actual title, and you'll have to listen to the review to find out which one. Yep, yep. I have to say, Paul, also this episode, great for lovers of the blooper section. Oh, the, the I thought you were talking about this episode recorded right now, and I was like, what are you saying, Andy, that we're going to mess up a lot during this episode? We literally just started. But yes, you're right. In that bonus episode, Andy did the editing of this one. Killer job. Killer job, Andy. <laughs> I, had, I had some laughs while I was listening to the, the blooper section. Also, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I was very pleased with the music I was able to find for the outro because <laughs> it calls back to something that is said in the beginning of the episode and something that happens in the bloopers. So pretty proud of that one. I'm proud of you, Andy. Thank you, Paul. Shall we move on to our regularly scheduled program, Andy? You sure you don't want to just spend the next hour and a half listing acronyms? <laughs> the dream. One day. <laughs> that's that's going to be our new podcast spinoff is just an acronym <laughs> listing podcast. <laughs> There's something there. There's something there. But Andy, what have you been putting in that beautiful mouth of yours? Well, I wanted to highlight this snack that I recently had. I, I posted a picture of it on our Instagram, and I said, I'm kind of excited, kind of scared to try these. It's this brand called Plant Snacks, and they make these cassava root chips in a couple different flavors. And the one that I tried was beet with vegan goat cheese. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever had uh, non-vegan goat cheese. This is the this is the one that you posted on the Instagram, right? I did. It was causing quite a stir, I feel like, on the yeah. gram. Mixed reactions, for sure. And so here's my evaluation of these, these snacks, these plant snacks, if you will. Does, no, no taste of beet whatsoever. Good, good. It, the beet is just like the coloring of these cassava chips. The vegan goat cheese... It's kind of just like maybe a slightly tangier white cheddar. It's sort of this this powder that's on the chips. And I liked it. Hmm. I wasn't overwhelmingly pleased with it, but I, I wasn't upset. I wasn't upset that I purchased these. Feels like the type of snack that I'll see it in the store and start having like more fond memories of it and start to pick it up more often. So I don't know. I'm curious. I'm curious to try some other stuff from this brand because it was such a unique combination. Something, though, that was odd, and someone pointed this out on our Instagram, is that on the back of the package, in the nutrition information, it lists five milligrams of cholesterol. Mm -hmm. Now, I, Paul, was under the impression that cholesterol does not exist in any plant-based food. And I did look that up, and according to PCRM, they say, since cholesterol is found only in animal products such as meat, dairy, and eggs, vegans consume a cholesterol-free diet. Interesting. But it says vegan on the package, like not just referring to the goat cheese, but just under like the list of like good thing, gluten free, whatever. It yeah. also says vegan. So I'm maybe, a little confused. 
Yeah, I don't know. That's weird. Maybe someone should investigate into that. Yeah, maybe someone that's not us. <laughs> we got too much on our plate, yeah. and that's cassava root chips all over our plate. <laughs> we're too busy eating them. And bonus episodes. And, and we're eating bonus episodes as well, yes. Yeah, it's the gift that keeps on giving. You know what else is the gift that keeps on giving, Paul? What's that? The news. The news. It just keeps coming. So Andy hit me with this first bit of news. Yeah, so this is pretty interesting. We've been talking a lot about overseas labeling of various vegan meats and milks and cheeses and all that stuff. And we've seen that battle get fought a little bit here on U.S. soil. I think Mm -hmm. in regards probably most prominently to the battle between Hampton Creek and Unilever over like Hellman's over the use of mayo in their just mayo. And they they lost that battle. And this is something to uh, coming to us uh, on May 17th from stltoday.com, which says fake meat can't be labeled as meat. Missouri lawmakers say. So it's just that. Let me read from this article. Missouri lawmakers approved legislation Thursday outlawing companies from labeling lab-grown meat products or meat substitutes as meat. As part of a package of changes to state agriculture and conservation laws moving through the legislature, the meat provision states that if a product isn't derived from an actual cow, chicken, turkey, or some other animal with two or four feet, it can't be marketed as meat. The change, which now goes to the governor's desk, was approved on a 125 to 22 vote, and it's backed by the state's pork producers, the Missouri Farm Bureau, and the Missouri Cattlemen's Association. So it's not officially official yet, but it's honestly hard to imagine why the governor wouldn't sign this, given that it is a a heavily agricultural state. I'm honestly, I'm more worried about this as it's going to affect the lab grown meat than I am about the vegan products, because I feel like the vegan products, a lot of them are like, we've talked about this before. Like I, I think that the vegan products will be fine, but the lab grown meat I'm worried about because I feel like that was going to just replace meat in people's minds. And, and this is, this is just, and maybe it still will, but this is, I feel like, a barrier to just being a literal replacement for the, like, people could replace their, their, the regular animal flesh meat that they're eating with the, the lab-grown meat, and they wouldn't know the difference. But now it's like, there's something in the way of that. There's, there's a label that's saying, like, no, this is not the same thing. And I know this is, that's such a minor thing, but, you know, it's like, for some people, that might be the thing that turns them off from it. So I'm, that's personally what I'm more worried about in terms of this thing. Yeah, I think for a lot of people that that the label is going to be a big sticking point for those that are sort of thinking about maybe trying it. And I think the labeling of the lab-grown meat of this, which was cultured meat at one point, and now they're calling it the clean meat, seems like a really smart strategic move in terms of naming it because eating clean, quote-unquote, is like a really popular, trendy kind of term that people like to throw around right now that – Basically means absolutely nothing whatsoever, but people have positive connotations with things being clean. Yeah. So, so yeah, I do think that that could potentially mess things up for 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 those in Missouri. You know, because because kind of what this means is is that these companies that are producing their their lab grown meat or even like the Beyond Burger or something like that, in order to sell it in Missouri, they would have to change the naming of their product, which is kind of interesting because we were talking about that protect interstate commerce act 
clause that yeah. was trying to get pushed through by uh, Steve King from Iowa pretty recently and how that would essentially that would actually essentially kind of nullify this if that went through like that would be like a positive effect of that thing if it went through because then that would mean that clean meat made in California wouldn't have to abide by these rules set in Missouri yeah great that this really <laughs> this really fudges things up a little bit I feel like yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I don't know. I, it's I, I, again. I think it seems unlikely that the the Protect Interstate Commerce Act is actually going to go through, and I think that they'll figure out ways to work around it. Like you said, especially with like the vegan meats, they just call something tenders or nuggets or yeah. slices, whatever you know, whatever it might be. They'll find a way around it. But obviously, it's not good. It's going to be a little hurdle for getting the the general public to want to try these things. You know what I was just thinking is I. What is the whole two or four feet thing? Is that real? Is that like actually in the the, the papers? Is yeah, like is that the actual measuring stick by which they're going to determine things? It also makes me think. What about like bug protein companies or something like that? Oh. I wonder. You know, they got what they got hundreds of legs on some of those suckers. So, and like I, f- I honestly feel like that's starting to be. Not that I agree with it, but I feel like that's starting to be like I'm seeing those like look at the, this protein bar made out of crickets or like yeah. these cricket snacks and stuff like that. So, yeah, no, that definitely that would not apply. But what I was thinking, I was going in the route of like, I guess what this means is that some vegan activist needs to break into a a farm and and like insert a gene into a cow that makes them grow like a fifth leg. And then like all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> nope, not me anymore. Guess we can't kill these cows anymore. That seems like a very long con, <laughs> and Paul. and and a very much non-vegan approach. <laughs> it feels a lot like the disenhancement argument when it's like, well, we could just not exploit animals, and we could just push for lab-grown meat instead. Yeah, no, 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 exactly. Of course, I was speaking in jest. Yes, that's you, the court jester. <laughs> Paul, do you think that there's there would be an argument to be made for the clean meat for them to say, well, this ultimately did come from an animal with two or four feet. There's just sort of a step removed. I was thinking that two or four. No, I was thinking that two. That was a great joke, Andy. That was a great joke. Well, you didn't can add in you, some laughter when you edit this, Paul. I <laughs> didn't hear you laughing at that one. I thought to myself, hmm, that's funny. <laughs> no, that was that, that's a that's a good point. I I feel like they could make some arguments for it, but I if that's literally what the the I don't know, to me that's just such a weird if that's the like defining criteria that just seems to be a very strange wording or a very strange way to frame this whole thing, but I think they might try to like rather than either change their name or have to go through this whole like the interstate commerce thing. Now that if that gets all messed up, I think they would try to to, to make that argument. And and I if that's the case, I, I would hope that they would win and they would be able to sell the lab grown meat. But I don't know. We'll see how this pans out. Well, it's how it's it's funny to me because. Essentially, like I'm sure that the those that are for this bill would say, regardless of whether these cells initially came from an animal, it's not sort of in the spirit of the bill. Essentially, like it's like you know what we mean. Come on, 
But I wonder, you know, if they could argue that it's if it's genetically indistinguishable from meat that comes from an animal that was, you know, raised and slaughtered in the traditional sense, it it almost seems because it, then it's like no 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 animal must suffer and die in order for it to be labeled as meat. It just seems like this really kind of petulant attitude about everything. Well, if this. Because I was surprised when this article and and I guess the lawmakers like are specifically targeting not only the vegan substitutes, but also the lab grown meat. And if that is one of their targets with this, I imagine that they've thought this through. And honestly, maybe that's why they chose to do the two or four feet thing, because because everything else, like like you said, it's genetically identical to this other thing in every other way. It just doesn't have the meat doesn't have feet. And they could be like, well, we found the thing that, that the lab grown meat doesn't have. So honestly, maybe that's why they chose to do that. I picture some sort of like Johnny Cochran catchphrase in the courtroom that's like, if it doesn't have feet, it cannot be meat. <laughs> oh, that was so much better than my two or four joke. <laughs> <laughs> what if they could just like engineer the, the lab grown meat to grow feet? Or they can like, yeah, at, at like the cellular level, there's just they're like if you look in this microscope, there's these tiny little feet, but there's only two of them. Oh boy! All right, I think we've wrung this one dry, Paul. What's, <laughs> what's going on in Iowa? Speaking of Steve King, so this article is coming from CivilEats.com, titled "Iowa Residents to Sue the State Over Air Emissions from Industrial Hog Farms." And the tagline is, a lawsuit this week will call for the state to regulate confinement hog operations following a landmark jury victory in a nuisance case against Smithfield in North Carolina. And this article is from May 16th, so a couple weeks ago. And it's a pretty long article. They go into a lot of different details about what's going on in this case and what's going on in, in other cases. But the, the general idea is in Northeast Iowa... There's a massive hog operation, it says more than 25,000 animals, that are all being raised within five miles of a school, and the the community is, is concerned, I mean, they're, I'm sure they're concerned for their own health, but also for the health of these very, very young children who, you know, are, are breathing in all this, this terrible, terrible stuff. And so we've talked about... You know, we've we've talked about the waste that comes from these operations before. There's been a few documentaries, and and I I I really appreciate when these vegan documentaries do include something about this aspect of how how these huge agricultural industrial facilities how they affect these surrounding communities. But just to give you a little bit of an idea, in in Iowa and a lot of other Midwestern states, the the waste from all the hogs just kind of drops through slats in the floor and, and basically just stews there for months at, at a time between disposals. And in order to keep, in order literally to keep this from killing the animals, to give you an idea of how poisonous this stuff is, they just use giant fans to blow the air out of the building. And of course, it's blowing out of the building into the surrounding community, which there's, like it said, among other, I'm, I'm sure among many other aspects of the community is these schools that are there. And so eventually, the, the uh, a bunch of people got together in Iowa and sent a petition to the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, and they they really received no response from that. So now, following this 
this landmark lawsuit in North Carolina, which was against Smithfield Foods, like in a in a similar situation. Now they're going to try and file a lawsuit against the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. So yeah, you can. I would. I would just read through the article. It's interesting. It lists. It goes through a lot of other cases that have happened as well. But the main one they talk about is this this one that just happened in North Carolina, and it, it's kind of a bummer because originally. They were supposed to be awarded $50 million in reparations, and that got slashed down, like, significantly, like, to, like, I, I think one or two million dollars or something like that. Jeez. And, and it's, it's, a, it's upsetting because while, of course, like, the people in this community that are being affected by this should be awarded some sort of reparations for i'm sure all the 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 terrible like living quality that this is causing them i also know that you know one million dollars two million dollars three million dollars it's a lot of money but for these massive operations it's not going to shut them down and like i feel like they would have felt a 50 million dollar lawsuit but they're not going to feel as much like a one or two million dollar lawsuit you know yeah, especially if that gets spread out amongst a number of people. I think anyone that plays HQ knows that even a large sum of money can look pretty small once you split it with a bunch of people. <laughs> but Andy, what just in in general, what are your how do you feel about this? I mean, obviously it's it's a huge just horrific situation that they're dealing with and it it sucks to put it plainly, it just sucks that they even have to deal with this and that they have to bring forward this lawsuit. But I wish them luck. I hope that we can start to see some victories in these types of lawsuits and set some sort of precedent for for dealing with this. But honestly, Paul, it's also kind of something that people have to keep in mind is that the reason these facilities exist is because there is a public demand for them. And, you know, capitalism is horrible and it's going to basically seek to take advantage of sort of the the most disadvantaged already among us. And this is just something that's going to keep happening and it feels like it's just sort of a huge missing piece of the puzzle when these lawsuits get brought forward. But the like veganism isn't like a part of this picture. Like obviously they're not going to have a lawsuit. It's like everyone has to go vegan, but it's, it's like when people bring these lawsuits, it's like if they don't also go vegan, they're kind of saying we're okay with this pollution. We just don't want it in our community. Yeah, and I I don't mean that to be like it's their fault because they're not vegan or something, but I I don't know. Just it feels like are these lawsuits just like obviously I would like for them to inflict some sort of economic damage on these companies, but is it just this weird band aid that would maybe push an operation to areas that are even more and more disadvantaged, where you know eventually getting to a point where the the citizens of the area that the the facility is in because it can't just be around no one they have to have workers there is, is it just going to make it a worse and worse situation for people that are already being taken advantage of well i i guess i my hope is that the like the the lawsuit in north carolina that actually went through it kind of prompts more and more of these types of things to happen and I feel like not that I, Andy, I'm no lawyer, but I feel like once, you know, once one of these things goes through it, it's easier to get a similar type of case to go through. And maybe 
and, and there was also uh, the article also mentions the the Tyson operation that the 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 community was suing to make sure that it didn't get established in there. I forget where it was, but it didn't get established in their community. So I feel like the more of these things type to ha- the more of these kinds of things happen, maybe the easier it will be for them to happen and and it will just continue to even just like chip away monetarily or just chip away at like, oh, well, like we wanted to put our factory here, but we can't put it here. So let's try to put it here. Oh, there's a lawsuit. Can't put it here. Got to put it here. Like if, if it, I feel like anything that, that, you know, causes a, it's, is a nuisance to the, this an, massive animal industry is, is good for, for the community and the animals. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I definitely agree with that. I would rather these lawsuits go through than not go through. But, you know, if if we have a public that continues to demand these products at the price that they want them, at what point is there sort of just an impasse where it's like, okay, well, if you want this, you got to let us make it the way that we're making it. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope maybe it will open up some people's eyes like some maybe some people will realize that and be like, oh, wait, like we got this terrible, terrible factory out of our community but it's just going to go somewhere else so i should stop supporting this because that was terrible when it was here maybe yeah. i don't know yeah i don't know I, the, the, I hope so the last thing i want to say about this is that there was also i i read in this in this article there's actually a, a law that was passed in north so i had mentioned how the amount of money that was rewarded ended up getting severely depreciated and I believe, according to the article, that was the result of this law that was passed in North Carolina by Republican lawmakers that literally limits how much money the plaintiffs can receive when they sue commercial hog farms. <laughs> it's wow. like such a specific. No, I, I'm sorry. It's even more specific. Let me just read this. That limits the compensation plaintiffs can receive when suing commercial hog farms to a sum related to the diminished value of their property. <laughs> I picture it being so specific that it's like this <laughs> Greg can no longer sue Smithfield Hog Farm. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> can he have someone by name? Sorry, I guess that wasn't a funny joke, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow, that's like really that's really crappy. I didn't realize that they're getting so specific about that. And it's like, they're like, we know that this is a really bad problem and we're going to prevent your ability to get appropriate recourse for what we're doing. We know how bad it is. We know how horrible it is what we're doing, but we're just going to make it. So the cap of a payout that you can get is lower than a point where it makes it not worth it for us to do this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, just to, just to elaborate, on what they can get paid for it's just the value of their property so it it has so if there's any damages to their health quality of life enjoyment of property or lost income they don't they cannot get paid for that and and i feel like health is one of the big things that comes out of these these this waste yeah i mean that's certainly something we've seen documented in documentaries many many times so yeah that's that's really crappy paul yeah, I like I, I I cannot believe that 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 that's a thing that it's like, hey, sorry that we're literally killing you, but you can't sue us for it. Yeah, I mean, this I guess it's just sort of par for the course. 
you know, I mean, not just restricted to the animal agriculture industry. We see this with tons of big industries where they have lobbyists that are essentially writing the bills and then passing them off to lawmakers to get them passed into law so they can sort of create these custom bills or or legislative moves or whatever it might be. And then they end up with something that's so specific like this. And it's kind of like, what what person could possibly pass that and go, this is good for the country? Yeah, yeah. If if this is par for the course, Andy, I don't want to play on this golf course anymore. Time to go mini golfing, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Shop take small. It, take it to the vegan mini golf course. All right, Andy, so that was, that was uh, <laughs> I mean, it's good that they're suing, but it's kind of shitty that this is even happening. But let's move on into this last piece of news, Andy. What do you got for us? Yes, speaking of shitty things, so this actually came out May 10th and I was thinking, eh, we're probably not going to talk about this. It seems like a really weird piece of news. We've, we've covered this type of subject matter before most specifically episode 106 should vegans advocate for population control. And I was like, I don't know if we need to really retread this, this conversation, but I brought it back up because I think this actually ties into our main topic of discussion pretty well. So here we go, Paul, here we go. Here we go. This article comes from Plant-Based News, and it was on May 10th. And the article title is Kat Von D Accused of No Longer Being Vegan Because of Pregnancy. So if anyone is not familiar with Kat Von D, she is pretty high profile. I, I would say like low-level famous kind of person. Yeah. You know, she was she's a tattoo artist. She was on Miami Inc., which was wildly successful. Nowadays, she's really running with her makeup line and just seems to be sort of a, a personality that's out there that a lot of people love and adore. And so she announced a pregnancy with her husband, Leah Farsayer, and that was just done on her Instagram account. So, you know, as one would expect, there was, of course, a lot of people that were offering their well wishes and their congratulations. But apparently there were a number of people that were saying that because of this pregnancy, Kat Von D is, quote, no longer vegan. Let me read a little bit from this article. One user asked why she didn't give a loving home to a child in need instead of adopting, accusing the star of damaging the environment by unnecessarily creating a new life. Another wrote, congrats on undoing your veganism almost tenfold. Having one child increases your carbon footprint by eight, along with increasing animal suffering. Jeez. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty harsh. This is, this is how Kat Von D responded before we get into the implications of all this. Kat Von D said, I haven't undone my veganism in any way. If anything, I am excited about promoting a vegan pregnancy and raising an animal rights activist. I don't think you realize when you talk to people like that, you actually can do more harm in changing people's minds towards veganism than you do in actually helping. And yes, you are entitled to your opinion. You are also more than welcome to unfollow me too. But how about keeping your negativity off the comments of my personal Instagram account? All right, Paul. Mm -hmm. The first question that I want to ask you before we even like really talk about the substance of this article we're talking about it because of the way vegans are reacting. What do you think plant-based news' motivations are for making this article and titling it the way that they did? Kat Von D accused of no longer being vegan because of pregnancy? I don't know, because it's like a clickbaity title type thing. People are like, oh, what did like what did she do that's making her no longer vegan type type of deal? I mean, I, I think that it's literally because this story is like a it's like a entertainment news type 
type story. It's not like a vegan news story at all. And I don't, I, I feel like most people aren't even going to have like a nuanced discussion about this sort of thing. It's just kind of like one of those things where most people are going to be like, Oh, that's, that sucks. All right. Time to move on in my life. Like it does, it does seem like maybe there was a lack of vegan news in that particular period of time and they were (laughs) struggling to get something. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's, it's obvious to me that sort of aspect of it. The, the idea that they were like, well, this is a big name the word vegan has been used in a thing and then we must talk about it. Yeah. But we know that plant-based news is interested in promoting veganism and making veganism look good. Generally speaking, that's, you know, kind of their thing. And this article, you know, we know that the vast majority of the world is not comprised of antinatalists. And generally speaking, I would, I would, you know, without doing a formal poll, Paul, poll, Paul, Paul Paul. A PP. I feel like we could safely say that most people are excited when someone becomes pregnant and they view it as a thing that they would say congratulations to. Yes. Right? And so does this headline, especially if no one reads the actual article, what purpose could it possibly serve for a public that generally just reads a headline and then moves on? Because when I see this headline, I feel like the average non-vegan, if they happen to see this, they would go, oh, yeah, vegans are really weird and have some really bizarre ideas about what makes someone a vegan. I'm even more confused about what veganism is actually about. And it just feels like it serves no actual purpose. Other, like It could only have negative side effects from putting this out there. Yeah, like I feel like there's already enough stories, for, for instance, like the Toronto the Toronto protests that get enough mainstream publicity that makes vegans look bad without the vegan media also like putting stuff forward and being like, Oh yeah, here's this news story. That's kind of making us look bad. So it does seem like a strange move. Yeah. And like, I I don't know exactly how many people made these negative comments towards her. I can't imagine it was that many. Like, I could see maybe there's some anti-natalist Facebook group and it gets shared in there and then maybe even a hundred people go and, like, leave comments. But it it just feels like something that they're sort of taking what a few people did and turning it into a news story. And it just feels like it's not something that, from their end, deserves any sort of attention. Yeah. And then the fact that, you know, Kat Von D then picks up on it herself and and replies to it then boosts it even further because now if it even if it was two or three comments on her profile that would have gone unnoticed in a picture that probably had legitimately over a thousand comments you know but now it's like now everyone knows about it because she's talked about it these news outlets are talking about it yeah i don't I don't know if anyone like really reported on it other than plant based news. I, I I did type it in and there was like a bunch of blogs, but they were essentially just all they were doing was reposting this article. They weren't huh. writing it up themselves. They weren't adding their own commentary. And the the plant based news article is very devoid of any sort of opinion on the matter. Really, it's just it's like it's like objectively trying to say some people said this. Kat Von D responded this way and. I don't know. I, don't, I almost wish that it did take a stance about whether or not they thought she was undoing her veganism. Maybe they think that she is, 
and they wanted to get this out there to sort of promote more of an antinatalist way of, of ascribing to veganism. I don't know. It's just like, in my opinion, it's just such as like, I feel like a relatively small amount of people have those views in, in especially in like a society and culture where, like you said, Andy, people's first reactions to getting pregnant are usually like, Oh, congratulations, blah, blah, blah. So it's like that they expect that they would have, it's almost as if it's like it, they're, they're making it seem like, although I guess this is a critique that people would use against veganism, but it's like, by attacking this one specific person, it's almost like, well, what about literally the almost all of the rest of the world that is also doing this thing? And literally almost all of other vegans, most of other vegans that are also doing this thing. It's just, it's very strange to me. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a higher percentage of child-free vegans than the average population. But would you agree that it, I can still say most vegans will have children? Uh, I don't even know if I'd say most, but I would say say the majority certainly will. All right. All right. (laughs) But but Double digits, Paul. My my point, yes. My point still stands, though, that I I feel like it's weird to attack one specific person about this issue when the majority of other vegans and just the majority of people in general are doing the same thing. But this is like, a, this... this is a strategy. This is just like the anti-fur campaigns where it's here's a famous person and we can get our message out to a lot of people by going after this one person instead of going to Joe Schmo on the street who no one's ever going to hear about the interaction unless you film it and put some argument that's like vegan destroys furware and put it up on their YouTube channel and say, please give me Patreon donations. You know, it's it, like strategically, I feel like from their point of view, they're thinking it makes sense to go after someone that's high profile because look at the headline it garnered as opposed to there would be no headline in, in a different case. Yeah, no, I guess you're right, but I don't know. I just... I can't imagine being like that angry. Yeah. And, and so, well, so this is where I think it kind of ties into what I, I want to move on to in the main discussion. Again, I don't think we need to really retread our thoughts on, you know, population control and whether we want kids again, that's episode one Oh six. If you listen to it, we talk about a lot of sort of the ins and outs and how a lot of the sort of the, the premises that the sort of antinatalist movement is built off of is in some in some ways well-meaning but often flawed in terms of the distribution of of resource usage and how that affects everything um you know if you listen to that episode you will find out that i do not want kids uh, i am just not good with them but i have no desire <laughs> i just and they're not good with me i have no desire to have kids and and you know we had a follow-up question to that episode paul where someone said, is there an altruistic reason to bring a child into this world? And I could not come up with one. So I'm someone that's like pretty firmly like, I don't want kids. And I, for me personally, I don't think it's a good idea to bring more people into this world. But that's also, for me, it was kind of like, that's just how I feel. I don't go parading that around, except on this podcast, I guess, when people ask about (laughs) it when it comes up. And I don't try and make anyone feel bad. Like, I don't think anyone should feel bad for having a child whatsoever. Uh, You know, it's not my place to have any sort of comment on that. I'm just allowed to have my own personal views on the thing and, and practice them personally. And so 
knowing that I am someone that holds those views, I'm sure there would actually be a lot of common ground with some of these people in terms of maybe the philosophy behind it, right? But I am so appalled at the way that they're carrying out their message, the way that they're promoting that into the world. And if I wasn't already firmly in one camp or the other, I have to imagine I would see what they were saying and just say, look at these horrible monsters giving someone a hard time for becoming pregnant. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I am not of the same opinions or, or I don't have those same thoughts as you, Andy, but I totally agree that this, this doesn't make me have those thoughts more. <laughs> yeah. It's not doing them any favors. And so, so yeah, it just had me reflecting on how, how do we advocate? Do we have to take advantage of every single opportunity that comes up where we can shoehorn veganism or whatever our specific cause might be? You know, it's, it's often been said, Paul, you know, speak about veganism or about animal rights the way that you would want them to be spoken about if you were the victim. If you were the animals, how would you want the advocates on your behalf engaging with everybody else? And would you want them to be quiet all the time or wouldn't you want them sort of screaming from the top of their lungs because that's how dire the situation is? You're living a life of abject misery. You're about to meet a brutal death and your flesh is going to be sold for someone that's going to eat it and forget about the taste of that flesh in 10 minutes kind of thing. And so I I think a lot of people sort of think about that and say, well, I need to use every possible opportunity ever to speak out. I need to go to every protest, anything that's using any amount of animal in anything. I need to be there to speak out about it. So I think this is a good time to transition into our main discussion about that. But before we do, Paul, Mm -hmm. you know what we got to do. Got to give those Patreon shout outs. Yeah, we do. So as we said extensively in the beginning of the episode, we put out a new bonus episode, and the people that get access to those are the ones that throw a buck or two our way every month via our Patreon account. And if you do so, you'll get all these bonus episodes. Paul, now there's four and a half bonus episodes. Ooh. You know, that is a month's worth of bearded vegans just sitting there waiting for someone. Waiting for you, dear listener. <laughs> and and no matter what amount of you contribute, we will give you a shout out on the podcast, which is what we're going to do right now. So thank you very, 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 very much to Jamie S. Christine C. Drew and Giselle J., who we've we've met in Toronto and such wonderful people. Yeah. And Bobby. I was hoping you were going to say that like King of the Hill. And Bobby. 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 I'm sure Bobby Bobby. has never heard that before. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Bobby. Yeah. So if you want to get in on that, head over to thebeardvegans.com slash beardo. It's just B-E-A-R-D-O, and that'll give you some options. So let's get into this main discussion then, Andy. Yeah. So we titled this Knowing When to Shut Up. And we've talked about this before. And when we use this term about knowing when to shut up, we usually use it in connections with talks about being effective advocates, learning to listen to people. And I think, uh, tell me if you feel the same way about this, that essentially it kind of boils down to if you're having a conversation with someone and you're trying to advocate for something or, or sort of shape their views on an issue or get them to go vegan, whatever it is, if you're in that conversation and you are doing the majority of the talking, that you're probably not having an effective, constructive conversation? Yes. Yeah. 
And basically, we sort of say you should ask questions and listen, genuinely listen, more than you are doing talking. And this could look something like if someone says, but, you know, going vegan is so expensive. And you've heard this a million times before. And instead of launching into your usual, well, what about rice and beans and this and that? And I go shop here and I do the bulk. Whatever it is that you normally sit back at someone, instead say, oh, well, why do you think it's so expensive? And see what they have to say. And maybe they will list off the common misconceptions about how much something costs. But maybe they'll talk about their life experience and say, I'm on the super limited income. And I, you know, the closest grocery store is five miles away and I don't have a car. And, and you like really get to know someone that way. You really get to understand their concerns. And none of that would happen if you just launched into your pre-written diatribe that you always go on. So, yeah. So that's how we've normally phrased this idea of learning when to shut up. And the answer, of course, is most of the time you should probably shut up and listen and ask <laughs> questions instead. But I think there's a different facet to this specific idea of knowing when to shut up. And that's kind of this side that's like learning when to pick your battles and saying to yourself, oh, I saw Kat Von D do this thing. Should my voice be included in this thing right now? Or maybe there's a better time and place for me to raise my voice. Or maybe there's a better way for me to raise my voice. So we got this really great email from Cameron that we're going to use to shape this discussion. All right. So the email says, Today I took my first steps towards activism by attending two animal rights protests and outreach events. The first was a cube of truth and the second was a more traditional protest out front of a small cheese festival. The second event is where my questions arise. The event was made up of a few local farms showing off their cheeses from various animals. As we were approaching our posts for the afternoon, signs and literature in hand, someone quickly quipped, You guys are at the wrong place. This isn't a factory farm, so it's not cruel. They were right. We were not at a factory farm. The cruelness, however, I feel can be debated seeing as the animals are still being used and exploited for human gain. At one point, me and a few others were invited into the event to meet a few goats and sheep that were on display in a petting zoo and to meet the woman who owned the farm they lived on. The animals seemed to be in good health and doing as well as they could do having to interact with so many people in a strange place. The event organizer kept insisting to us that although our cause was noble, there was no need for it here because the owner had fewer than 20 animals. Therefore, they were all treated justly and lived comfortable and happy lives. This experience left me with two questions. One, what is an effective way to engage an animal farmer who truly believes they have a balanced give-and-take relationship with the animals they raise? And two, should our efforts be primarily focused on the large-scale factories that are hurting and killing animals every day rather than a small local farm? It's a great question. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's something that definitely made me stop and think because I don't have a stock answer <laughs> to just spit out at someone when they say, how do I talk to an animal farmer? Yeah. All right. So Paul, let's tackle these, these questions in order here. And that, that first one was essentially saying, how do we talk to farmers about this? And maybe from there we can talk about whether you should talk to farmers about this, but like, what do you think if you found yourself in a situation where you're talking to someone whose livelihood depends on raising and killing these animals, how would you handle that situation? So I, I feel like, cause when I was Andy, when I was doing like looking at 
looking up some some articles and stuff to, to related to this discussion and I was watching videos because there's a plethora of YouTube videos of like vegan versus farmer. You'll never believe what happens next. And like those sorts of things. And it seemed like from the few that I watched, they did try to establish not like common ground with the farmer necessarily and the vegan, but they did try to tap into like, oh, well, like you love these animals, right? Because I, I think the common thing that a lot of these small farmers will say, like in, in Cameron's question, is that like, oh, we're treating these we're treating these animals so well. They're living such great lives and and they truly like they truly do believe that that they're doing the best that they can. I'm not gonna say they're doing good for the animals, but they're doing the best that they can for these animals. And so if you are gonna talk to a farmer, I feel like tapping into that is probably an effective way of getting them to start to see things from your perspective, like getting them. I I think the common ground you might be able to find is being like, yes, I am also worried. Like I also care deeply about these animals and, and I also want the best what's for these animals. So I feel like that might be the way to talk to a farmer question mark. Yeah. I think that, that you, tapped into a really important phrase, which is finding common ground, because I I think it would be very hard. And I've ended up in a number of these conversations and they always go a little bit different depending on the point of view of those that are, you know, the farmer. But, you know, it's it's hard to find common ground when you sort of have a fundamental difference in opinion about the the moral worth of an animal. But I think that if you are trying to have a productive conversation, getting to that common ground is the best way to go. Mm-hmm. But I think in terms of like picking your battles, I honestly, it to me, that's not something I would engage in the conversation if it happened for me, but I wouldn't go out seeking those conversations. You know, I remember doing outreach at schools that had large agriculture programs and we, you know, we're showing our video to people about about what happens to animals in agricultural system. And these agriculture students would come up and they would they would just argue until the cows came home where (laughs) (laughs) and and it was it was often one of those conversations where before I've even completed my response to what they've said, they're already spitting something else out. So. You know, again, when you're in, if you're in a situation like that, when you're like, this person is not listening to me, those are really hard to get in. That's just a situation where everyone's just waiting for the other person to stop talking so you can spit your response back at them. Yeah. But, but it became clear to me after a while that there was that fundamental difference in how we view the moral worth of animals. But it was it was hard to sort of penetrate that because they had been indoctrinated to believe that what they were doing was in the best interest of the animal. That mm-hmm. if if they don't treat their animals well, they'll die and then they won't be able to profit off of the animal. So clearly they have to care about their animal. You know, they don't think about, well, I just have to care about this animal enough to get them to slaughter before they die kind of thing. Yeah. And they would argue that gestation crates, which is, you know, what the, the mother pigs are kept in after pregnancy that those are there to protect the piglets. So the mother pig doesn't roll over and crush her piglets. And that essentially having this gestation crate is no different than you putting a fence around your backyard so that your dog doesn't run out into the street and get hit by a car. It's, it's an altruistic thing to do to have this gestation crate. 
And it, it's, I think it is really hard to sort of break through to someone that has been so indoctrinated like that. I don't think that it's impossible, but I also think that Paul, you and I often harp on this idea of advocating to those who are the most like us, right? Like it doesn't mean that we can't talk to people that aren't like us, but we're going to have the most credibility with those that are in our same shoes. And I, I think that conversations like that are probably best left to those that have already made that switch that were in that situation Mm-hmm. And can say, I know it's scary thinking about giving up your livelihood or something you just went to school for several years for. Um, but, you know, I, I went through this situation and I changed it. And look, I'm fine now. I, I, I went to this field. I started Elmhurst Nut Milks or, you know, whatever it might be. I think something like that is, you know, we have to recognize that there are some people just based off of who we are and what our life experience is, we might not be the best person to talk to someone that's in this situation. And so, and, and even if you can quote, win the argument against, against this person, like even if, if you kind of tackle all their points. So I was watching this, this, like I mentioned before, one of those videos that was like vegan versus dairy farmer. It was, it was that, that, that advocate earthling ed, who was debating a dairy farmer and it was on like a live BBC show. So this was on television. You know, they purposely put a vegan advocate against the dairy farmer because that makes great television. But like, I thought he was effectively able to establish his earthling ed, his, his viewpoints and, and how like the reason that he he'll trespass against like and break the law is because he wants transparency and he wants people to see what's going on to which the uh, the farmer responds like oh well we do have transparency we like one day a week we'll allow people to any and families can come and they can look at what's on our farm and earthling ed is obviously like well you're not you, but you don't probably don't show everything right and so my point though is that even if you can like really corner like uh, someone like a farmer at the end of the day, they are going to be different from just like your everyday Joe, because this is also their livelihood. And this is also like how they make money. So what this farmer ultimately ended up falling back on was just like, well, this is what people want. And, and as long as people want it, I'm going to keep giving it to them. And I feel like there's, there's, it's hard to be like, well, you should quit your job. You should stop making money. Like that's, it's, I feel like it's, it's an easier ask to be like, can you change your diet than it is to be like, can you stop working? You know? Yeah. I I think you've talked about this before in terms of like, I think maybe it was, it's come up probably a bunch of times, but in regards to say telling someone they're not vegan, if they continue to be on medication, when you yourself have never had to give up your medication, like if you have never had to give up your job because of your ethical beliefs, you can't tell someone else, you know, that they have to go do that thing. Or like, they're not going to see the weight of the argument as being appropriate because you're sort of asking them to do something that you have never had to do, nor will you do. Maybe it's someone that comes from a long line of cattle ranchers. They're the fourth generation, and the weight of their the expectations of their family is upon them. And you have never had to deal with that. And they'll be like, "Well, maybe you do have a just cause, but like you can't possibly expect me to change my entire life trajectory because of this." Yeah, and and this is not to say that people haven't 
you know, changed their careers because of ethical reasons. But like you said before, Andy, like, th- and there's a whole, there, there's a whole gosh darn documentary about, about this. What is it? I, you literally told me the name of this yesterday, but Peace what is of, the one with the peaceable, peaceable kingdom, King, peaceable kingdom. It is literally about this. So it's like, there are people that can speak to this. Maybe most of us that haven't had that experience shouldn't be the ones speaking to this. And a further point I have, Andy, is that I I feel like there's maybe not a need to push so hard for, for small farmers to advocate to small farmers specifically, because it's like, maybe you'll change their mind. Maybe they'll go vegan. Maybe they'll stop raising and killing these animals. But what impact does or does that have any greater impact for veganism than converting any other any other person? It's like, yes, maybe there'll be 20 animals that are spared at that one time that then won't get, you know, like re uh, there won't be more animals bred specifically for that purpose. But I don't believe that that has any impact about making other people go vegan and those animals that that person's not going to breed, I think will just get bred into existence somewhere else. And, and people that eat meat will find somewhere else to, to get them. So it's like, and, and even if, if every small farmer or the majority of small farmers stop raising animals, like, does that mean that non-farmers would also do that too? Like, I'm just trying to think about, I, I and and I get I understand why we do get more upset about farmers because we're like you should know better like you're you're seeing this you're seeing all this bad stuff happen like you should know better than this like I get I get that argument but at the end of the day is there a reason to be advocating to small farmers more so than just the general public to go vegan Well, I think that one could say that there is more of an impact if a small farmer went vegan and decided to make an example of it. So that's what Peaceable Kingdom was all about, was farmers that that made this change, and now on some level they are activists, and they've turned their farm into a sanctuary for these animals, or they've become vocal advocates of it. And on some level, I find those those stories of personal transformation in a documentary like Peaceable Kingdom to be even more powerful because it does say to the public, look, I was more entrenched in this than anyone you will probably ever meet. And I made the change. And it kind of goes to show that anybody can make the change kind of thing. So I do think on that regard that there there is more power in it. But and I guess I would never be upset about an agricultural facility shutting down, even if they were a small one. And, you know, I, I, yeah, probably that business would just go to some other farm in the long run. But, hey, yeah, what if everyone does band together and and everyone does take a stand and they say, we're not going to do this work for you anymore? Okay. I, I, I get that. I get that. And and I, I definitely feel your point about being more impacted by these displays of great personal growth. Yeah, and you know you know it's it's been a while since I've seen Peaceable Kingdom at least since December, I guess. <laughs> and <laughs> and so I don't remember exactly every word. It's been a minute since I've read a testimonial from from one of these former farmers, but I don't remember any of them saying that they decided to go vegan or to switch to a sanctuary because 
of anyone's outside influence. Like it was all sort of a change of heart that came from within. Like I couldn't bear to send those goats off to slaughter anymore. And I had become so close with these cows and it just the, the cries of hearing them separated from their babies was, was too intense. And I made the change that way. Uh, yeah, uh, no, I, I think you might be right. I will say, I don't think that that completely nullifies the point that it could be possible because there was another, there was like another YouTube video that I watched that was just, uh, it was like a, uh, just some outdoor activism thing. It was like a cube of truth or something like that, where there was a bunch of people, you know, holding videos of scenes from slaughterhouses and then, and then people going around and talking to, talking to passersby. And this specific video, it, it highlighted one farmer that, that this, this young person was talking to and the farmer did express kind of like some sympathy towards the animals and, and how hard it was to to give up the animals after making such a connection with them. And the person starts like crying at one point. And, you know, I, like maybe that person had and I think that this is some of the things that Peaceable Kingdom touched upon, which is like maybe this person has been experiencing those emotions but has just repressed them to some extent or pushed them down mm-hmm. and this this event might have been the push that this person needed to be like you know what like i should be honest with my feelings and that i'm not okay with this and this is a, not a good thing that i'm doing and making changes so i don't think that we should completely you know disqualify any outside influence from having having any effect yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, there could have been many conversations they've had with vegans or other former farmers or, or something like that. So that they just didn't explain in the documentary. And obviously societal pressure and all of those things can play into it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I guess the the one sort of final note that I would put on this is that if you're trying to really convey to someone what this is all about, because... You know, in, in this at this event when they were invi- they were invited to meet the animals and they seem like they're doing well. I think it's always important for us when we're communicating veganism to say it's not about cruelty; it's about animal use because any use of an animal is cruel because you're using a living sentient being to your own ends. And I think that often we fail to put that very plainly to people. And then that lets you argue, well, a gestation crate is less cruel because it makes sure the mother pigs don't roll over and kill their piglets and all these things. And it's like you're you're sort of letting them set the table for the discussion that's going to happen. And I think you need to be proactive about setting the parameters of what it is that you're actually talking about. And you could ask, you know, you could ask them, you know, if they say, well, I treat my animals as well as I treat my children. And you could ask them do you send your children off to slaughter? You know, like whatever it might be, like give them leading questions to really explore the nature of what they think is their love for these animals. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a very good point, Andy. And I feel like we're going to touch upon that in a little bit too, because I got another thing to bring up a little bit later that I think we'll circle back to some of the ideas you just brought. But before we do, there was one, there was one thing I wanted to, I did want to tie back into Cameron's, specific email because remember this was not like a local farm they were protesting it was a cheese festival they were protesting that was made up of products from local farms and even though this was not Cameron's specific question 
I do think there might be differences in protesting this festival versus just local farms as a as an entity mm-hmm. because this cheese festival instead of thinking about it as I'm protesting small farms you can think about it like I'm protesting this culture where cheese is celebrated and accepted so I, I feel like maybe with changing some of the messaging of the literature or the signs or, or how the protests was coming across it could be something different where it was like it, it was more so provoking the idea of like we should not be celebrating these things versus like let's attack small farmers which is what it seems like even though it seems like the people that work there seemed very kind to, to them which is good but it seemed like their idea was like oh you are attacking the farmers you're protesting the farmers versus like you are protesting this the idea of this this event yeah yeah that's that's an interesting point it actually feels like the people that were at this cheese festival were maybe doing more work trying to find that common ground like they were, <laughs> yeah. they, were they were using that specific strategy should we um, listen to their podcast, their cheese cast? <laughs> cheese cast. I hope there's a clip of Steve Urkel saying, cheese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right that the messaging that's used is obviously very important in, in anything that we do, even just like a conversation that we have. But yeah, take that opportunity to frame the debate or the question or however you want to say it. Like take that opportunity to, to be proactive in, in how you frame it. I think it's also important to ask yourself if you're going to go after a small festival like this, like what is your end goal? You know, we talked about this a lot with the antler protests in Toronto. Is your goal to get people to come to the festival, realize they've, they're engaging in something horrible and then leave before they pay to get in? Is your goal to change the minds of the producers that are there? Is your goal to shut down this festival entirely? Is your goal to just mill around and convince people that are there to go vegan or to start thinking about going vegan? I think that depending on what your goal is, that will also determine whether you think that, that this specific avenue is a worthy use of your time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A- Andy, since we had that Toronto discussion, I've I've been so that was such a great discussion because I, I've been so much so much more aware of of reflecting on all these different sorts of things and being like, what is the like, what is the purpose of this? Like, what did they have the goal in mind when they were doing this? And, and I, I do feel like not that not that we were the first people, I'm sure, to to put forward these ideas, but I do feel like that's such an important that's such an important thing for any time you're organizing an event like this to be able to hone in on what your goal is and how the things you are doing will help you reach that goal. Yeah. I mean, cause I think that, you know, we tend to be very reactionary as a group and the, the Toronto protest was a perfect example. And if anyone didn't catch that episode or didn't remember this restaurant that was known for serving, you know, quote unquote exotic meats or like sort of outside of the traditional norm of what you find at the average restaurant, you know, pig, chicken, turkey, cow. They had a, a chalkboard out front that just said venison is the new kale. And someone riding by on their bike saw that and got outraged and then started to organize these protests. Yeah. And, you know, it just it, it struck us, if I remember correctly, as very reactionary and very like, oh, oh, th- this this word meat is on a thing. And I need to go make my voice heard about this and sort of rushed into it without any specific end goal. And then it yeah. just 
got into this sort of forever battle that ultimately got the restaurant a ton of positive attention and a ton of business. And I think it's important for us to not be reactionary and and to recognize maybe every instance of every utterance of any animal product is not a need for us to make a big stink about it. And it's not like we need to say, oh, we need to ignore animal use and animal cruelty and, and abuse and all of that. But that sometimes there's value in conserving your energy. Yeah. And considering and considering what type of message it sends to the general public when this is the thing that you're going after as opposed to all these other things. Like with the with the antler protest, there was a butcher shop across the street. There's other restaurants all over the place. And it wasn't really clearly communicated in the signage of the protest why they were choosing antler and not one of the other restaurants or butcher shops in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so, Andy, with with those wonderful remarks that you just made should we kind of transition into kind of discussing how we can assess whether or not something is going to be effective like how can we assess with if it's effective how do we know if something is maybe going to be not worth our time what do you think well let me let me i guess ask you this just to stay close to the examples in in cameron's email here Let's maybe talk about the pros and cons of focusing on this small farm and use that. Like, how do we assess these things? Like, what are the pros? What are the cons of focusing on a small farm versus a large operation? Okay. Like, okay. Uh, like, okay so is there any benefit? What can you get out of protesting a smaller operation versus a larger operation? I think if you got... Well, okay. A benefit just in general could be you get the farmer to go vegan and to close down the operation. Like I I imagine that you are not on your own or even with a single protest are going to be able to get a very large scale operation to get closed down. So, you know, it's a it's it's a more tangible victory maybe. It's it's yeah it's like more of an achievable victory, it, it you know it's it kind of sucks. It's like when people go after small businesses versus say like Walmart or something. It's like well I could probably change the the poor labor practices of this small business versus Walmart, which is this juggernaut with a huge you know legal backing and all of these things. So it's sort of you're picking a target that's a bit weaker and would be more susceptible to your attacks. Although I, I I don't know I I don't know if I I don't know if I necessarily agree that getting smaller or, or just getting tangible victories is always better than getting like than working towards something that doesn't necessarily have uh, you can't not that you can't see the progress because you should be trying to measure progress any way that you can but it doesn't have any like this thing happened headline you know yeah yeah. Yeah, I, I like I don't I don't know if if I agree that 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 one of those things is better than the other. All right. All right. Well, let's let's leave that there. Um, I think one other benefit of protesting or drawing attention to these smaller farms is that it does allow us to actually get at the the core of what veganism is all about, which, again, is about animal use, not necessarily animal abuse. Uh, use mm-hmm. is abuse. And so if we go after 
you know, the, the Tyson factory, well, everyone knows Tyson's horrible and obviously plenty of people still choose to consume their products, but it sort of gives people an out when you show them a video of a Tyson factory and they say, well, that's horrible, but I can go to Joe's chicken shack down the street and get some chicken that was raised quote unquote humanely and grain fed or whatever it might be. And so if you sort of cut that middleman out and you go straight to the source and say, listen, it's, it's, it's animal abuse, no matter what, no matter how well they're treated. It, I think it does allow us to send a clear message as long as our science is clear, our communication is clear, our chants are clear, like whatever it is, anything that the public's going to come in contact with in terms of messaging. I think that when done well, choosing these types of operations actually can be better in terms of getting our message across. Unfortunately, I feel like we've seen a lot of instances where people have targeted these types of small operations, a local butcher, a local restaurant, whatever, and they've been very all over the map in terms of of their their messaging. It's like people just show up with whatever five signs they had at the last couple of protests they did, and it's not specific to that specific individual establishment. But is... I'm going to ask you to weigh the pros and cons inside of our pros and cons list of your specific point that you just made. <laughs> is getting the message across better? I don't know if I want to use the word better, but how does how does getting the message across relate to the effectiveness of getting people to go vegan? And what I mean is that, like, I think showing the super graphic footage not going to not going to get everyone to go vegan obviously but for many people has uh, provokes a stronger reaction and i think for many people who were exposed to some sort of literature and then chose to go vegan that literature was probably highlighting the terrible conditions and the terrible ways that these animals are slaughtered so i guess my point is that what if yeah, we got our message across and we're very clear about that we are against all animal use, but what if that just doesn't really get people to go vegan? But what if just focusing on the worst case scenario, which granted is the majority of the way animals are raised and killed, what if that produces a an army of vegans that give a pass to the smaller operations because it's not as bad and they are in turn not doing the best job educating others on what veganism is truly about? But you said it, it made an army of vegans, so isn't having an army of vegans better than having a small village of vegans that have the messaging right? Well, What's better? Maybe I'll say an army of plant-based eaters. How about that? <laughs> How about that? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know enough of, of the – I don't know if there has been research, but I just am not sure if, if – and we kind of had this discussion. I think we have this discussion like a, a week ago or a couple weeks ago where it was like, is it worth getting your message? Like, is it worth? Because I think, I think Andy, this is where somewhere where we disagree where it's like, is it worth getting the nuances of our, our verbiage and our vocabulary correct? The syntax. All right. Like, is that worth it? If it, doesn't convince as many people to go vegan. Yeah, that was in relation to the veganuary discussions of which we've had many. I don't think that 
that should prevent us from trying to get the best possible verbiage across. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with you. I agree with you on that. Like, I don't think we need to water down our message necessarily, which I think no. that some could say that's what Veganuary was doing. And that's what, you know, that's what I would argue we're doing if we only focus on factory farms. If we don't address the smaller issue of animal use on these, you know, these smaller farms. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just, I don't know where I was going with all this, but I just feel like there, I feel like there is a way that we can still use the fact that factory farms are terrible without giving a pass to these other places. Yeah, I think that that is exactly what these people are trying to do when they focus on the smaller <laughs> operations. But, well, okay, but well, then let me rephrase it. I think that focusing on the factory farms, there might be a way to do that while still acknowledging that this other stuff is bad as well. Well, you know, I feel like that's what some of these, some of the more animal-centric vegan documentaries do, which is they'll, some of them, they'll like most of the footage is from large agricultural businesses, but then they do have, you know, they'll have shorter segments about why, like there's no such thing as humanely raised animals and, and those sorts of things. I feel like that's kind of what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I think cowspiracy is a great example of that where it sort of paints the picture. It talks about how horrible large scale industrial agriculture is. And then it systematically goes through and says, well, what about grass fed? And what about this local chicken butcher? And what, you know, blah, 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 knocking down these arguments one after the other. I think that that's really effective. Look at us, Andy, finding common ground in cowspiracy. <laughs> But, I mean, I feel like that's an example of including both in the picture. And I think that if you just focus on the factory farm, you're you're losing half of the picture. But you can't, unlike Cowspiracy, which is a documentary, you can't physically be person, protesting at like a large slaughterhouse and a small local farm at the same time. Well, I think that is a good segue into the next question that I would want to ask you, Paul, which is... Should people be protesting farms at all? And I guess, you know, we'll define protest as having a physical presence outside of a farm or a slaughterhouse. Maybe maybe you could even say doing like a save vigil or something like that. Like, do you think that's where we should be? So I watched a, I watched another video, Andy. I watched a video of like a <laughs> vegan versus slaughterhouse worker. And it was it was from a save vigil and i think the first time that we talked about the save vigils my my thoughts on it was kind of like i don't think that this is a bad thing i don't think that it's hurting veganism but i i was i was uh skeptical about its effectiveness in terms of how many people would actually witness what was going on and how many people would even be aware of what was going on and really it, it like for for some of these really remote slaughterhouse locations i was like the only people that are going to see this are the slaughterhouse workers and and if the vegan depending on how the save vigils work like if they're getting in the way of the what these workers are doing 
and I'm not saying that they're wrong for doing this, but they're it's going to just be an annoyance for the those workers, and and they're they're like you know they're starting off with a negative bias against what these people are doing just because they're getting in the way of having getting their work done, but so I think like I'm still skeptical about that in terms of how effective it is at getting people to go vegan or getting the awareness out unless you then release YouTube videos about it. Well, but in this Paul, partic- let me, can I, can I post something to you? What pose if, it. what if the purpose of these vigils is not to convince anyone to go vegan? It's not to change the opinion of the, the workers, the truck driver, the slaughterhouse worker, whoever it might be. And it's simply just to say it's our duty as vegans to show some small amount of kindness to these animals that have just are about to go through the worst thing possible. And up until this point, they've had the worst lives possible. And it's our duty to bear witness. And it's our duty to give them a little bit of water and some comforting human touch. I, I do not think that there is anything wrong with doing that. I don't think that I think you were using the word duty. I don't think I would say it's our, it's our duty to do that duty to do, but do the do do the do. Uh, But because I I do think that while I believe that that is a a noble cause, f- my personal opinion on that is that like I could be doing other things that will be getting people to go vegan, and then hopefully less animals will even be in that situation. I'm typically of the viewpoint that I should be doing things. Th- the most effective thing that I can do is to save the future animals rather than the animals that are already in existence right now. As as bleak and morbid, and I don't mean to sound like defeatist as that is, I personally don't know how much I can do for the animals that are in existence right now, but I can hopefully do something to prevent these animals from being in existence in the future. Well, could you do both? Could you attend a vigil like this and provide some comfort for these animals? however small, and then also spend time going out and advocating for a public to go vegan? I could. Yeah, I could do both. I could also do another thing and a a fourth thing and a fifth thing. There's always something else that I could be doing. And why aren't you doing all of those things, Paul? Because I got no time, Andy. Oh, so you're saying as human beings, we have limited time and resources and we have to (laughs) strategically pick what we do? So, yes, but at the same time, I don't think that this necessarily means that everyone should be doing the same thing. And in fact, I I believe that that would be in a, an ineffective use of the diversity of humanity. If we all just said like, if someone came out and said, this is the thing that we all need to do to get a vegan world and just everyone did the same thing, because I I do believe in a diversity of tactics. Okay, so you believe in a diversity of tactics, but does that mean you think that there's nothing that should be ruled out? No, I I do believe that there should be. St- I I no, I don't believe that. I I do think that there should be stuff that that I don't want to sound so like definitive about it as you put it, but I <laughs> I I do think that there are things that are much less effective or possibly damaging 
to what we're trying to do with with good intention with good intentions but it's damaging to what we're trying to do and those things i believe should be reflected upon and maybe those people that are doing it will come to the same conclusion as i am maybe they'll have a different opinion because really you know it's just my thoughts on the matter so they have their own thoughts on the matter but yeah i I don't know I, i i think that if it were up to me there were things there would be things that people that there would be ways that people are advocating that would no longer happen so i mean you know the whole theme of this is is knowing when to shut up and and sort of learning how to best focus our time and energy if we have finite time on this planet and finite time in the day and if you if you say we can rule out certain types of activism based on their being ineffective or perhaps damaging to the movement and the cause overall, you know, but you also believe in a diversity of tactics. But what then is to prevent us from saying, oh, we've measured it all out and this one specific tactic is the most effective thing and everyone should do that. And if you're not doing that one thing, then you're wasting your time. You know, Andy, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good point. But I don't but I don't know if there is I don't know if there would ever be just one thing, you know, like, for instance, I think that leafleting can be very effective depending on, you know, where it is and the, the population that you're that you're handing out leaflets to. Like, I feel like if you if you do that smartly, if you instead of just, you know, giving out leaflets willy nilly anywhere, I think that that can be very effective. But I also think something like the cube of truth can also be effective. That's going to hit a lot of that. That that's going to hit a lot of passerbyers in a way that leafleting probably doesn't. So I don't know. I don't know. I I I stand firm that there should be a diversity of tactics. Full stop. <laughs> All do right. you want me to do you want me to name a name of a tactic that i don't agree with andy is that what, no is that what you want from me no no i'm just i guess i'm trying to to probe your thoughts on sort of what are the limits of saying that we need a diversity of tactics and what are the limits to saying that we need to assess how to effectively use our time and how effective certain tactics are going to be like like you know sort of what are the parameters of that what are the limits of that and could could one say then that if you have limited time that you're acting unethically if you choose to do activism and you're choosing a form of activism that is something like perhaps a save thing that is more symbolically important to those that are participating probably more so than any other uh, tangible effect that they could have even on the animals that are shown momentary kindness like, do you think someone could make an argument and say you're acting unethically if you engage in a certain type of activism that even if it's not damaging to the movement or the, the visibility of veganism or the reputation of vegans, but it's not like the best thing you could do. And it's unethical to then do that thing instead of something else. I don't think that you could say that because I also think that there are some, you know, I, I think there are certain types of activism that are geared towards certain types of personalities or people have certain abilities that that make them more geared towards different types of activism and i i do think it would be unfair to say like you need to do this thing even if it's something that that person 
isn't very comfortable doing or or can't do for for one reason or another. So for that reason alone, I would say no. You can't say like it's unethical if you don't do this. What if it is something that they're comfortable doing? I'm still gonna I'm still gonna say I'm still gonna say no because even though Andy, you have you've narrowed down in this hype in this theoretical situation. You've narrowed down activism to the the best form of activism. This is just activism for animals specifically. It's like there are many other causes out there, many other very important causes out there that people, I would hope people are also working towards. But even if for all of those other causes, they've also narrowed down the best form of activism, there's no way that anyone could do all of those things. And now, if you told me that there was one thing that people could do that would just, like, make the world a better place and just, like, make humanity better and make our relationship with animals better, then, yes, I would say, ethically, we should do that thing. Well, some people might say that just means advocating to not eat chickens alone. Some people, you know, like One Step for Animals, they made that assessment. They said chickens are the the most horribly abused and therefore we should just advocate for them to not be eaten anymore and that would drastically reduce the number of animals that are killed but that doesn't i don't i don't think that addresses the point that i was making though because that's just saying like the world is messed up and here's the thing to do to help one specific problem and that would be that one specific thing would be the killing of chickens so I don't think that that ties – I don't think that that is what I was saying because that's just saying like I've chosen the problem that I'm going to deal with and I'm going to ignore all these other problems, which I, I don't think is the correct uh, – I don't want to say correct. I don't think would be the way to go about it. You know, Paul, that's actually really interesting. That has me thinking about our discussion about the whole One Step for Animals thing and how – Yes, it is just specifically a step to help anim- to help chickens. But they're phrasing it like you are helping all of animals by choosing to not eat chickens because you're reducing the total number of animals overall, all-encompassingly. The total number of animals is going down, and therefore you are helping all animals. But really, it's just helping the chickens. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. Um, that's kind of a, a sneaky backdoor way of getting vegans to maybe care about or engage in that one specific type of messaging. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. But, but in in general, Andy, I think the, another problem arises from this whole your whole idea of like there's one thing that we should be doing, and so everyone should be doing that. Is it is that ethical? I feel like another problem that arises with that 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 hypo- this hypothetical situation is that even in the vegan community like we have so many different ideas not only about effective adv- effective activism but we also have different ideas about like what our founding principles should be and not only not only our principles of like how to treat animals and and what if any animal use is acceptable versus absolutely no animal use and also like should we should we be helping animals in the wild or not helping it or leaving them be but more specifically i wanted to talk about like when this idea about when we go do 
a specific protest or something like that, what's the goal that we have? What's our specific goal that we're trying to get done? And because to make a protest effective, I feel like the goal has to be more specific than just making the world go vegan. It needs to be more specific to the situation, to that specific situation. So I don't know if there can be this one, this one form of activism that's going to be the thing that, 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 that turns the world vegan just because I I think we do need these more specific achievable goals. And further, I think that vegans disagree on what those goals should be to enough of an extent that I don't think there would be one, like one ethically promised way of, of making the world a better place because I know I was in doing some research for this, you know, I was reading about one organization who their goal is just to end the most amount of suffering and the way to end the most, the most animal suffering is happening in the animal agricultural business, as opposed to like circuses and, and, and stuff and SeaWorld and stuff like that. So they're, they're kind of, they kind of say, because we want to, our goal is to end the most amount of suffering. We are really mostly targeting the animal agriculture industry. And I know other organizations, their goal is more so to just raise the public awareness about veganism in their specific types of protests, which is one that I personally don't agree with, but that is just another goal of certain organizations just to get the word vegan out there to make headlines with the the word vegan in them. So I feel like before we can find this one perfect form of protest or one perfect form of advocacy, we got to get our act together and figure out what we even want, you know? But like, what's the, we need to even be more agreeing on like, what's the one, the the one sub goal, the more specific sub goal of that, like how we're going to get there, you know? Yeah. I don't envision that ever happening, Paul, but you know, I think, <laughs> I think one thing that many in the movement disagree on is even how do you define the term effective? Yeah. Which, which maybe is just sort of a rephrasing of what you just said, but it's kind of like, yeah, how do we measure the success of this movement? Do we measure it by the number of future animals that aren't going to be put into the system? Do we measure it by the number of vegans? And obviously some say one correlates to the other. Do we measure it by the availability of vegan, you know, of plant-based products in Costco or, you know, like whatever it is, like what is the metric that we want to use to, to measure this stuff? And we don't even agree on that. What would you say it is, Andy? It's a good question. I tend to ascribe to the idea that we are the most effective when we have saved the most amount of animal lives. And I guess more specifically, that would mean actually preventing animals from being put into the system. Okay. But but I know people do use that reasoning to promote things that are less than veganism. Well, if we just promote, you know, Meatless Monday and we could get more people to do that and it would actually have more effect than getting, you know, 10% of those people to just straight up go vegan. You know, I think that there also needs to be a consideration for how does it change the public perception of animals as well? Because I think even if we got everyone to eat plant-based, but the public perception of animals is that they're okay to use for all these other reasons, that's kind of, it's like a half victory, but obviously, you know, our, our 
behaviors dictate our beliefs. And one could argue, oh, well, if all the population started eating plant-based, they'd be more likely to get on board with not going to SeaWorld or a rodeo or whatever it might be. But, but I think that that is also a consideration. It's not just the number of animals saved, but also in the process, are we fundamentally changing the way that society views animals? I can get behind that, Andy. I was just going to say the percentage of vegans, but your answer is more detailed than mine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and some people might just say that those are one and the same thing, that like the, uh, the more people go vegan, the less animals will be used. You know, all, all other horrible capitalism and all of those things sort of factored into that fact that, um, you know, but like in theory, if enough people did it, it would have an impact on supply and demand. Yeah. Yeah. So, Andy. Yes, Paul. We've been recording for almost two hours at this point. Yeah, and people will will go two hours, and they'll look at the actual amount of time that they've listened, and they'll go, <laughs> wow, they've cut out a lot of bullshitting around. <laughs> so in, in preparation for this episode, we listed out a lot of instances where, as you put it, other instances that might require us to just shut up. <laughs> and I like that. I like the way you put that. But I'm thinking that we maybe will extend this into a part two next week. And the good thing that that might allow us to do is open it up to all our, our dear Beardo listeners and let them kind of either put their input in what we've already talked about, or also maybe give some of these specific instances where they've seen advocacy or they've uh, participated in some form of advocacy where they were like, Oh, like, I don't know if this was really effective. I, I, I don't know if maybe this is an instance of a vegan inserting themselves in a situation where they shouldn't have and, and getting some input from uh, the listeners might be, might be a nice thing to do. And, and in, in order to continue this discussion next week. Yeah. I feel like we, as we've been known to do, have gone off on a tangent that is not specifically answering Cameron's question there. And, and next week, we will get into some very specific real-life examples of all of these things. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to whatever emails might come in about this. I think that'll really boost the episode. So, yeah, send those in. And, of course, you will send those in to thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. You sure will. So, Andy, I, I, it feels weird that we, not that we ever really conclude most of our discussions with a nice like little bow, but yeah, I think this is where we're concluding it for now. Yeah, I think this will be uh, our second ever two-parter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what do you got? It, I feel weird, Andy, if we didn't finish this discussion, but <laughs> I will ask because I must. What do you got coming up, Andy? Legally, it's actually in Paul's contract that he legally must ask me this question every time. He doesn't know that he signed it, but I signed it for him in his sleep. Um, <laughs> and you put it, did you give me a nice nickname like you gave on all those letters? <laughs> Paul, Professor Paul Steller, Steller. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's see here, Paul. This, this coming weekend's a big one. We got... You at the Lancaster Veg Fest. Our friend Josh is going to be rocking at the Albany Veg Fest. And I personally, Andy, will be at the Vegandale Food and Drink Fest in Houston, Texas. All of those are on June 2nd. Three Veg Fests in one day. Coordinated attack. We'll see if we can pull it off. <laughs> uh, June 9th, Paul's going to be at the Philly Veg Fest in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. June 10th, yep. I'll be at the Asheville Vegan Fest in North Carolina. 
and I'll actually be tabling the two days prior to that, June 8th and 9th, which is sort of a, like a speaker day, not a festival day. So uh, come on out for that. June 16th, Tri-State Veg Fest, Edison, New Jersey. June 30th, Vegandale Food and Drink Fest in Chicago, Illinois. Tons of Veg Fest in June. And all of those events, you can come find me or Paul behind the Compassion Company table. Uh, look for the green tablecloth. Look for the shirts with the vegan unicorn and the rainbow hair. Look for the beards. And the beards, hopefully. And, yeah, say, what's up, Beardo? We'll give you a button and sticker and, and say hi and, and chat, crowd permitting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I look forward to these. Paul. Yes, Andy? You know how much I love to edit down an episode, and I, I just I have such a, a joy in concise things. Good, mm-hmm. good things come in small packages, as they say. Mm-hmm. And one of my most concise phrases in the English language is the following seven words. We are the Bearded Beacons, signing off. go over the news and then conduct a thorough exploration of learning when to shut up and knowing when to pick your battles. I'm going to say that better <laughs> in today's episode. So shall we move on into our reg- our regularly scheduled program? <laughs> program. Shall we move on into this next piece? I thought I had something to say. I got something to say. I can't remember what it was. I'm not putting misfits in the outro. Oh no, that's Danzig. Can I say? No, that's Misfits. That's Misfits. Do you think Travis Barker's chest tattoo that says "Can I say"? Do you think that's "Can I say"? General idea is in Northeast Iowa. There's a Northwest. massive. Hi- no, no, it is east. Ignore me, Paul. I don't know. We'll see how this pans out. Pans labyrinth. Um, <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> take it to the vegan mini golf course it's just like it's just like some mini golf hmm <laughs> you ever seen the uh mini mall infomercial no <laughs> flea market montgomery <laughs> i'll send you a link <laughs> okay okay she was on miami inc and i think what has she done, Paul? And then people going around and talking to passerbys, passerbyers, passersby, passersby. I think we'll circle back to some of the ideas you just brought. Circle back, circle back, circle back, circle back. Because my daddy <laughs> taught me good. <laughs> we got you at the Lancaster Veg Fest. Our friend Paul. No, you're Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I won't even mention. No, I will. 
We are the Bearded Vegans, signing off. Nice. Two, almost exactly two hours. Yep. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, two hours. And stop.